Greetings from the Classic City. I am Jamie Cheek. This is A View from the Couch. Thank you so much for joining me today. I wish I had something happier to talk about today. But unfortunately, as I sit here on Friday recording uh, this week's episode, the Braves have still not made a significant move that we can talk about. Uh, Dan Quinn is still the coach of the Falcons. I'll actually be at the game on Sunday, so I'll be able to give a full report of what is, I'm sure, going to be just an amazing atmosphere uh, at 1 o'clock on Sunday afternoon inside Mercedes-Benz. And unfortunately, there's just not enough recruiting talk to uh, to actually keep your interest for longer than I can say that Georgia once again had a great recruiting class. Uh, but at this point, until we can make it mean more on the field, I don't think anybody coming off the 2019 season wants to hear about another top three, top two, top ranked recruiting class. So as we... Got to the end of this week, kind of towards the beginning of this week, I was trying to think about what I was going to talk about, and I saw a lot of, you know, hey, it's it's the end of the year, so you do a lot of the the retrospective stuff, you know, man, what has happened this year? Well, obviously, uh, I guess maybe the rest of the world picked up on this a little quicker than I did. It's also the end of the decade. Uh, I don't know why, but until like two weeks ago, it had not really occurred to me that the year 2020 starts a new decade. So as I reflect back on this entire decade, that's where my podcast is going to go today. This was a decade that saw some pretty significant streaks in. The Cubs won the World Series for the first time in nearly 100 years. The Cleveland Cavaliers won the NBA championship, Cleveland's first championship in over 50 years. And a team like Clemson, that at the turn of this past decade was a joke. That the program was at a certain level, but the term Clemsoning or pulling a Clemson was widely used for a team that had all the talent in the world but underachieved. That program has now become the premier program in college football. Unfortunately for me, the decade from 2010 to 2019 only brought unknown levels and new levels of misery. We've got two new stadiums in Atlanta, but we also have deeper misery than we've ever felt before. And so when I say for me, I, I realize more and more that everybody that listens to this podcast and just kind of, you know, I always classify Atlanta and Georgia sports together. But my particular brand of fandom is, you know, Dogs, Braves, Falcons, Hawks, Atlanta United, those five teams. I have a lot of friends that are Braves fans but follow a different college football team or pro football team. Uh, a lot of people, and I would say most people that listen to this podcast, um, you know, maybe Dog fans but maybe not so much Falcon fans. I think everybody that might listen to this podcast uh, would follow one of those four teams that I mentioned, but not Atlanta United. So for me and my particular brand of fandom and, and the teams that I follow and the teams that I love and, and commit time to throughout the year, the irony of this entire decade, if I could kind of put it in perspective, would be this. In 2010, my love for soccer 
began with the 2010 World Cup. The U.S. played a game against Algeria, and Landon Donovan scored a goal at the very end of the game that completely changed the way I felt about soccer. It showed me for the first time that while the scoring's not high, and there are times, for sure, that the game is not the most exciting, that it has the potential to produce some of the most dramatic moments in all of sports. And the worldwide reach of soccer really appealed to me following that 2010 World Cup. I started watching the Premier League. I started watching uh, you know, the Champions League over the next few years. And then towards the middle of the decade, when it was announced that Atlanta was getting a club, uh, I have religiously followed Atlanta United for the past three seasons. So the biggest irony of my fandom in this decade is that the sport that I've grown to love the not more than college football or pro football, but there's been more growth in my fandom of soccer than any other sport over the last 10 years. However, nobody else feels the same way. And the fact that in this decade, the only championship that could be claimed by this state or by this city is the Atlanta United MLS Cup Championship in 2018, and nobody seems to count that, well, that's pretty ironic because that was the moment of joy for me. So if you're worried right now, if you're listening, Kirk, and you're worried, oh, God, is he about to spend the next however long talking about soccer? Let me, let me just go ahead and take that away. No, we're not going to talk about soccer today. But what we are going to talk about today is the top 10 worst moments <laughs> from the past 10 years in Atlanta and Georgia sports. So again, it's all based around those five teams that I mentioned a moment ago that are my teams, the hurt, the despair, the, uh, the just heartache that we have felt that to me, when I really reflect over the past 10 years, as far as the teams that I follow, there's very little to be happy about. And there are some historically painful moments that have happened to these teams, to this state, and to the city of Atlanta in that time. So today, we're going to count down the top 10 most painful things that have happened in the last 10 years with one purpose. We're going to look back one last time, and when the clock strikes midnight on December 31st, and we turn the page out of 2019 into 2020 and leaving this, I don't even know what to call it. I guess they call it the aughts or something. It doesn't matter. But leaving this decade of despair behind us, we open up what will hopefully be a brand new day, a day that will change Atlanta and Georgia sports history, a new decade that will be filled with joy, with happiness, with titles, and with joyous moments that 10 years from now we can look back and say, what an amazing decade it was for Georgia and Atlanta sports. Unfortunately, we can't do that today. Today we have to have one last time of thinking about all the crappy things that have happened over the past 10 years. So buckle up, grab your box of tissues, and get ready to relive some of the absolute worst times in sports. So we're going to start today what I have uh, decided to call dishonorable mentions. So the things that I'm about to list didn't make the top 10, but still stunk all the same. So in no particular order, here we go. The dishonorable mentions for the past decade, uh, the Braves 2010 
Brooks Conrad series against the Giants that ultimately ended Bobby Cox's uh, managerial career in baseball. I was there for Bobby's last game as uh, we put a man on the field that could not catch a ground ball. That doesn't make the list. The 2014 and 2016 home Georgia losses to Tech uh, between the hedges, that didn't make the list. The 2010 Falcons home loss to the Packers in the divisional round of the playoffs, that one was 48-21 to in our own house. That did not make the list. 2019's loss uh, for Georgia at home to South Carolina, which was just a couple of months ago, but still very, very painful, unfortunately did not make the list. 2015, the Eastern Conference Finals, where after being the number one seed, the Atlanta Hawks uh, fell 4-0 to the Cleveland Cavaliers uh, in the first time that the Hawks had made it to the Eastern Conference Finals. The best season in Hawks history ends in a sweep in the Conference Finals. That did not make the list. The 2012 NFC title game, the Falcons lose to the 49ers. They blew a 17-point lead in that game. Uh, They had the ball driving at the end of the game and a pass tips off of Julio Jones' uh, hands that would have given the Falcons new life and a first down on fourth, and I can't remember how many, but the Falcons coming up just short of the Super Bowl in 2012 did not make the list. The Atlanta United losing their first home playoff game. Now listen to this, all you people that hate soccer. We lost the game 0-0. We lost it on penalty kicks. But after 120 minutes of soccer, we go to penalty kicks and we lose in our own house in our first ever playoff game. That did not make the list. It also did not make the list that United lost this year's Eastern Conference Final and their quest for back-to-back MLS Cup championships. We lose to Toronto at home. That did not make the list. And then finally, not making the list, mainly just because none of you really care about it whatsoever, in 2018, the U.S. men's national team losing a game on the road at Trinidad and Tobago to miss out on the 2018 World Cup. That game was actually played, I think, at the end of 2017. But basically, the U.S. missing a World Cup did not make a list. So those are painful and horrible moments that just weren't quite painful enough to make the list. So the list will start right after this. Checking in at number 10. In 2011, for the first time in the history of the NHL, a city lost not their first, but their second franchise. So what makes this so unique is any team, any city could lose a game, lose a series, have a bad season. No, Atlanta can go the extra mile. We can actually lose an entire franchise. There's so much crap that I could talk about with this. It really had nothing to do with the lack of fan support. It had everything to do with infighting uh, between the, the ownership group that had bought the Hawks and the Thrashers. A lot of the people, uh, the higher-ups in that organization cared all about the basketball, cared nothing about the hockey aspect of it. Um, There was a power struggle within the ownership group that caused lawsuits within the ownership group that caused the need to sell the Thrashers off 
in order to be able to actually continue running Phillips Arena at the time and the Hawks. So if you want to read up on that, you can. I, I thought about trying to go into a little bit of depth there, but I just don't feel like people would be very interested in it. But 2011 is number 10 on our list as the Thrashers leave town. Now, it's not just bad enough that we lost the franchise. It's not bad enough that we lost the franchise for the second time. The Atlanta Flames left Atlanta in 2000, or sorry, 1980. It's not bad enough that in all the years the Thrashers existed from 1999 until 2011, they only made the playoffs one time and they were swept in that series. None of those things are painful enough. And if you go through the history of the, the Thrashers, there were a lot of things that happened that just really sucked for the franchise. Accidents, you know, all, all, all kind of just terrible things. But I think the worst part of it is that when the Thrashers left town and they moved to Winnipeg to become the Jets, that was three times that Atlanta sports had lost a hockey team to Canada. The Flames left to go to Calgary. The Thrashers became the Winnipeg Jets. And the Knights, who were only in Atlanta for about six years, but those were my formative years, we used to get uh, reading rewards where we could go to Atlanta Knights games. They, they left, and they went to some Canadian city that I don't remember, probably because it's not important, because it's in Canada. So not only did we lose the Thrashers, but we lost them to Canada. And the only thing that I can imagine would have been worse if we've managed to lose them to, I don't know, France. Number nine, the 2019 NLDS. I had to check myself a little bit to try to figure out, was there some recency bias with this? Um, and where I landed, you know, just really looking at all the things I had on the list and all the things that didn't make the list was, I think this does rate in the top 10, even though it just happened, just because of the nature of it. You know, everything that happened in 2018 was positive. Even the loss to the Dodgers, you didn't really feel like that was a step back. It was obvious in that series how much better Los Angeles was than Atlanta, and it felt like the future was in front of us. Alex Anthopoulos even said during this season and leading up to the playoffs, that the key to this season and being a success was at least advancing one time into the playoffs. So you go out, you lose game one at home. That was very disappointing. You come back and Fulte is amazing in game two. You win the classic game three with Wainwright pitching so well for them, Soroka pitching so well for us, and then all of the late-inning heroics uh, from Dansby and ultimately the Braves winning that game and then having game four – you know, in hand, basically, in the middle innings of that game, feeling fairly confident. But then opportunities to tack on runs and kind of put the game away were missed in the sixth and the seventh and the eighth innings. Things fall apart in the bottom of the eighth. The Braves go quietly in the ninth. And all of a sudden, we're facing a game five at home in the biggest letdown that I can think of as far as Brave history goes. Not just because they lost. I mean, we've lost a lot of game fives um, at a lot of them at home, really, if you go back to 2002, 2003. It's not just that they lost. It's that they lost in a way that you sat down, you had your drink with you, you were ready to settle in for what you just thought was going to be an excruciatingly nerve-wracking game. And 15 or 20 minutes of real time later, if you're like me, you, you, you might have left the game on, but you were done. There was no reason to watch it. The 11-run first inning in Game 5 put it away completely. And the salt in the wound happened a few weeks later as the Nationals, 
the Gnats, of all horrible things that could happen. This team that has won divisions but never won a playoff series and even started getting real excited the fact that they won the wild card game. The Nats were all confident. Oh, now we've advanced in the playoffs. Not to, you know, ignoring the fact that you didn't really advance past where you'd been before. They play in division series before. But the Nats managed to beat the Dodgers. They managed to beat the Cardinals. They go all the way to the World Series. And then they managed to upset the Astros and the godless, horrible, awful Washington Nationals in a year that we win the division. They win the World Series. So yet again, joining the 1997 and 2003 Marlins, a team in our own division that we beat, makes the wild card, wins the World Series, while Atlanta just adds one more year to the drought since we won a World Series. So the 2019 NLDS, number nine on our list of most painful moments, in the last 10 years. We move on to number eight. Number eight is the Georgia loss to Auburn in 2013, commonly known as the prayer at Jordan-Hare. Aaron Murray. Uh, This was, I think to me, the game that we should remember Aaron Murray by. Um, So his stats for the game, let me, I'll just read them off here. 33 of 49, 415 yards passing, two passing touchdowns, and two rushing touchdowns. Georgia's down 37-17 early in the fourth quarter, about 12 minutes or so to go, and Murray just goes crazy in the fourth quarter, has a fourth quarter for the ages, and Georgia takes the lead 38-37 with a minute 49 to go in the game. Georgia's defense, led by Goober, uh, Todd Grantham, comes out, stops Auburn dead in its tracks on first down, on second down, on third down, even getting some like lost yardage plays in there. It's fourth and 18, and history then happens. Nick Marshall, who is the quarterback for Auburn, was kicked off of Georgia's team a couple of years earlier. He was a cornerback for us. He goes and plays quarterback uh, for Auburn this season, and he's kicked off the team not just, you know, I mean, Different reasons people can be kicked off the team. This guy's kicked off the team because he's stealing from teammates in the locker room. On the other side of this historic play, Trey Matthews, who would leave Georgia and transfer to Auburn, and Josh Josh Harvey Clemens, who was both Harvey Clemens and Matthews, big-time recruits. Hey, they're going to help turn Georgia's defense around. Neither one of them stayed at Georgia. They're both gone a couple of years later. They're the ones that tip the ball as Nick Marshall basically just hauls off, throws the ball as far as he can. The receiver for Auburn has no chance. We've got two defenders back. And for some ungodly reason, rather than just batting the ball down, two players try to catch it. Neither one of them succeed in catching it. And the ball just falls gingerly into the hands of the Auburn wide receiver who, if you really think about it, where was he going? The ball was underthrown from where his route was going. He was running four or five yards downfield deeper than this pass was going to get to if these two players for Georgia had not tipped the ball perfectly into his hands. He goes in, scores the touchdown. They missed the two-point conversion. What you forget about that game is Murray leads Georgia back down the field, and Georgia has a couple of opportunities to throw the ball into the end zone to still try to win the game, even after the prayer at Jordan-Hare. 
Uh, those attempts were obviously not successful, and Georgia loses the game in amazingly dramatic fashion. Um, Auburn, meanwhile, would go on two weeks later for the kick six and a historic season as they ended up falling to Florida State in the uh, last BCS championship game. But for Georgia and for Aaron Murray, everything went downhill after Georgia scored that touchdown to take the lead in the fourth quarter because Murray would be injured the next week. He wouldn't even finish the Kentucky game. This was the last complete game that Aaron Murray would ever play as uh, Georgia's starting quarterback. So the painful loss and the way it was lost, um, obviously part of the reason it's ranked at number eight, but at least for me, another part of the reason it's ranked at number eight is because of the significance. Uh, I believe at this point, Aaron Murray is the greatest quarterback in Georgia football history for what he's done and did on the field. Um, but to have his career for all intents and purposes to end this way was an absolute tragedy based on the fact that he himself almost single-handedly had brought the team all the way back in this game. So number eight, Auburn lost at twenty or at Jordan-Hare 2013, the prayer at Jordan-Hare. I think dog fans need to come up with a better name for it from our perspective. Obviously, the prayer was answered um, for Auburn fans, but for Georgia, not exactly a prayer being answered there. We continue to number seven, the number seven worst moment of the 2010 to 2019 decade was Georgia's loss against Florida in 2015. Much like the Auburn loss I just talked about at number eight, the circumstances surrounding this loss are what make it so terrible. So for people who might not remember the 2015 season, Georgia starts out 4-0, Uh, but ends up losing to Alabama after being favored over Alabama coming into that game. Uh, Loses to Alabama in a torrential downpour here in Athens. Just for some context, the second or third game of that season, Georgia beat South Carolina. Grayson Lambert had an all-time day. He was like 21 of 22 passing, something like that. Just tore South Carolina up. Eventually, that loss early in that season would leave Steve Spurrier one of the worst Georgia killers of all time to retire, quit in the middle of the season, abandon the South Carolina program. Really, most people will see that loss to Georgia early in that season as the moment where he said, okay, this isn't fun anymore. I don't like losing, so I'm going to leave. So early in that season, everything was clicking. It was going great. Even after the loss to Alabama, eh, it's not the end of the world. Alabama's a good team. A week after the Bama loss, there's the Uh, Loss on the road at Tennessee. Georgia had a pass dropped at the end of that game that would have tied it up and potentially sent it to overtime. So the program is in flux. There's a lot of frustration about back-to-back losses. You're coming off of those losses headed into Jacksonville. And the announcement is made that Fatone Bauta is going to be uh, the starting quarterback for Georgia when they get to Jacksonville. Grayson Lambert and Bryce Ramsey have been the quarterbacks early in the season. Georgia didn't seem to be able to find anything offensively that really was working. The defense was playing all right, but the offense just couldn't get going. So we go completely new quarterback. Going to see some more running as this, you know, Balta is more of kind of a, a read option guy. Georgia's going to completely change everything up, except they don't. Georgia comes out and runs the same crappy offense they were running for the beginning of the season, except with a quarterback that was worst, 
worse off trying to run that offense. He was ill-equipped to do what they were asking him to do. So they took a running quarterback and put him in passing situations, and somehow that didn't work. Georgia loses to Florida 27-3. The margin of victory, not nearly as bad as the 2008 or uh, 2009 games. But it's not the margin of victory that it really stands out. But this is the day. No matter what Greg McGarity may say, and no matter the fact that it didn't happen for another month, but this was the day that Mark Rick lost his job at Georgia. And while a lot of fans may look back on that and say, well, things have gotten better with Kirby Smart. Look at all the success that Georgia's had. The trajectory of the program has gotten better since that loss to Florida. And all those things are true, but at least for me, my formative years, my, my, my years where I really fell in love with Georgia football came 2001 through 2015, the Mark Richt era. Those 15 seasons that Richt was here in Athens, representing the program in a way that can only make you proud to be a dog. He wasn't perfect, but the fact that the Mark Richt era, one, had to end, made me sad. In hindsight, it was the right decision. But to me, looking back, the saddest part is, wouldn't it have been better if we could have just gone 8-4 fourth Lambert or Ramsey play in this game? Georgia still loses the game. You go out and you win your last four the way they did in an attempt to save Mark Rick's job. But it's just understood at the end of the season, okay, let's, let's go our separate ways, pretty much the same way that it was. I mean, they did a joint press conference after his firing, so it wasn't like he, let, he was run out of town and disgraced. But the problem with this and the reason it ranks as number seven is, to me, it just showed how inept Rick was at the end of the Georgia era, and that's sad. Anybody that wants to look back, you want to think about the good times, the 2001 through 2007 years. That was the prime time of Mark Rick. That's the, the era that Kirby Smart is now being compared to. But from 2008 until 2015, there were a lot more terrible times than there were good times. And the reality is that what ultimately cost Rick his job was the horrible, god-awful decision to go with Balta as his quarterback but not adjust the offense to fit what Balta could do. And there is a no more perfect image of the Georgia program at the end of the Rick era by trying to force that square peg into that round hole and then being kind of aloof and surprised that it didn't work. So number seven on our list, the Florida loss to 2015 and the end of Mark Richt in Athens. I'm getting a little depressed talking about this, so how about a quick uh, break for a joke? Four college football fans climbed to the top of a mountain. Clemson fan, a South Carolina fan, a Florida fan, and a Georgia fan. And at the top of the mountain, they're all talking about how much they love their teams. And the Clemson fan says, I love Clemson so much, I'm willing to jump off this mountain. And he jumps off the mountain. He says, this is for Clemson. The South Carolina fan says, hey, no Clemson guy is going to one-up me. I love South Carolina more than he loves Clemson. This is for South Carolina. And he jumps off of the mountain. The Georgia fan says, I love Georgia more than I love anything. And so he says, this is for Georgia. And he pushes the Florida fan off the mountain. You've probably heard that before, but we needed a little bit of happiness mixed in with all this sadness. As you uh, recover from the joke, uh, I know you're still tickled by that, but let's move on in our countdown to number six. 
And number six is the Braves 2011 collapse. So if you'll remember, this is when Atlanta went into September with an eight-and-a-half game lead in the wild card. So they they have this seemingly insurmountable lead in the wild card, but a 9-18 and 18 record in September uh, forced the Braves to lose the wild card by a single game to the Cardinals. Um, so, obviously, the biggest issue with the collapse was the fact that the, Bra- the Braves didn't have to be good to make the playoffs. 2011, uh, the season had been going on really well. I mean, they were way behind the Phillies because the Phillies were just one of the elite teams in baseball that year. But the Braves had had a really good season. They had won 80 games heading into September. They were really in a place where, you know, really at the beginning of September, they were, I mean, they were in the big lead with the wild card, but they were still in contention for the division. And it just got out of hand fast. And once it started snowballing, it it just seemingly never got any better. And we've we've all experienced those games, especially Georgia fans, Falcon fans. You've experienced those games where everything's going along okay, then all of a sudden one little thing happens, then another little thing happens, and you get this impending sense of doom that here it comes, bad things are going, the, the mojo is going the wrong way. And in those situations, you just feel like it's a train going down the tracks that you can't stop. Well, the reason that this 2011 collapse makes the list is because it wasn't a singular game. It was an entire month of just barreling towards despair and not being able to do anything about it. You know, the Braves won nine games in September this of 2011. If they would have won 11, they make the playoffs. They could have gone 11 and 16 and made the playoffs, but they only won nine games. Uh, and in that situation, you got to think, like every time they would win a game in September, I remember thinking, okay, now we've gotten it back. Okay, here we go. Let's go. Now we're going to go. And it just never clicked. It never got rolling. And the lasting image for me for that, you know, kind of the, the image of that collapse was that the last game of the season, the Braves and the Cardinals are both tied for the wild card. Uh, Chris Carpenter pitched for the Cardinals that night, and he just, I don't remember who they were playing, but they just shut them down. Cardinals won like eight to nothing. Carpenter nearly had a no-hitter. I mean, it was a dominant performance. So it was obvious early the Cardinals are going to win their game. If the Braves win, they're going to make it to a playoff game before, you know, a wild card playoff basically the very next day. And the image before the game was Chipper Jones standing in the dugout giving a the team of pep talk and a couple things have stuck with me you know questions that I I guess I have in retrospect that I never really knew or understood you know baseball in general is not a very rah-rah sport you celebrate when things are good but there's not a lot of pep talks over a course of 162 games you just go in you play you do your thing and you don't really have a whole lot of team meetings or closed door meetings I mean when you do you hear about them and, and, and that's why you hear about them is because it's not the most common thing. Um, it always struck me as strange that Chipper waited until the team was in the dugout to have that conversation. It almost felt a little showy to me. Um, so during the 2011 season, this is coming off of 2010 after he had injured his knee in Houston 
Uh, there was a lot of speculation. Will he just go ahead and retire? He plays 2011, plays really, really well, and then announced uh, before the 2012 season that 2012 was going to be his last year. So this is the end of the 2011 season, and it's the first time and really the only time in his career that I ever remember seeing Chipper in that kind of vocal leadership role. And the team just went out and, and laid an egg. And so it was just a very long and drawn out, painful month of September that eventually led to the Braves missing the playoffs in Freddie Gonzalez's first year. And it really set the tone for Freddie's tenure as manager because that collapse was the first thing that happened. They come back the next year, they win the wild card, or they make it to the wild card game. We'll get to that in a minute. 2013, they win the division, but that's the year that everything goes south in the playoffs against the Dodgers where Craig Kimbrell, he's still standing out there in the bullpen. So Freddie's tenure just, it didn't get off to a good start, and it was because of this really unprecedented collapse in September of 2011. So that month-long pain ranks number six on our list today. We're halfway home. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but uh, you're going to start seeing, well, you're going to start seeing a theme here. Number five on our list is the 2018 SEC title game. So for the second time in the calendar year of 2018, Georgia plays in Mercedes-Benz Stadium against Alabama. Coming into the game, they were a, I believe, two-touchdown underdog. Uh, that morning game day was live from Atlanta, just like they were this year for the SEC title game. And it was almost unfathomable for the experts on game day to even consider what, what would happen if Georgia won the game. It, Alabama, before this game and before the playoff, I said this in the podcast a couple of weeks ago, was being talked about as the greatest college football team of all time. They were winning games in such historically impressive fashion that the idea that Georgia, a team that had lost on the road to LSU earlier in the year, who had lost earlier in that very same calendar year, the idea that Georgia could beat them with Tua and the way he was playing was just completely unfathomable. So as you go into the game, Georgia builds to a 14-point lead they set up for a field goal, and Rodrigo Blankenship misses it. Now, if you have learned anything as a Georgia fan, when you miss a field goal, the whole world falls apart. At least that's the way it feels as Georgia fans. Going back to the 2000s, to the Rick era, everything could be going swell, along, or swell. Everything could be going so good. You miss a field goal, and it's just like doom sets in on you, and you're like, oh, God, here we go. Missed field goals were always harbingers of terrible things to come. So even with the 14-point lead, the real problem in the 2018 SEC title game was Jim Chaney, who is the biggest person I've ever seen in real life, um, was working at the stadium with Chick-fil-A a couple of years ago. Chaney comes down after the game, kind of in the bowels of Sanford Stadium, heading to the locker room. He is a huge man. Whatever, However big you think he is, he's bigger than that. I've seen fatter people on TV, but I've never seen anybody as big as Jim Chaney. And the reason that I'm even talking about this is because Jim Chaney, as big as he was, his butthole got about the size of a pin. 
during the second half of this game. He did everything he could to try to not lose the game. Uh, and he got so tight that I'm pretty sure he produced a diamond or two in the second half of the 2018 SEC title game. So the irony of this entire thing, which is just you can only make this up for a Georgia team, Georgia stops the greatest quarterback in the history of college football, Tua, and who comes to Alabama's rescue but Jalen Hurts. The fake punt will live in infamy. Georgia's tied when the fake punt happens. In a way, I think you can look back at it. If you really put it in context, you know, if Kirby Smart punts there on fourth down and Alabama drives the length of the field and whether they kick a field goal or score a touchdown to win the game, it really doesn't matter at that point. But the game's tied and Kirby's going out there trying to win the game. So, the execution of the fake punt was frustrating. You put fields of all people in there. It's like, hey, let's put a quarterback in there, and maybe they won't see that You know, we're going to try to run a fake here. You lose the element of surprise when you do that. So obviously the execution was poor, but the concept of going forward or trying to do something or trying to break up just this heavy, heavy momentum, I, this, this impending doom that was surrounding not only the team, but just the the entire fan base, everything that had milked up to that point. I don't necessarily blame Kirby for trying to do something, but obviously what he did was not effective. So Georgia turns the ball over on downs. Hurts drives Alabama straight down the field, and the Tide win the 2018 SEC Championship game on their way to the college football playoff and eventually the national championship game where they would get blown out by Clemson, who didn't do what Cheney did in the second half. Clemson kept their foot on the gas for the entire four quarters, and they blew out Nick Saban in a way that he had not been blown out as head coach of Alabama. This ranks as number five right now. In five years or in 10 years, you may look back and see this as an even worse moment. It could go higher on the list. And the reason I say that is without much context, without much time passing since this game, This could be a turning point. We could look back at the second half of the 2018 SEC title game. We might have seen the peak of the Kirby Smart era. In a lot of ways, for me, the Rick era turned on that loss in 2008 to Alabama at home in the the infamous blackout Bama game. Nothing was as good after that as it was before for the program. But... Maybe, maybe this wasn't the turning point. Maybe the better days are ahead. But we're not talking positivity today. So we could look back at this game and say, it never got as good again under Kirby Smart as it was when Georgia had that 14-point lead and the ball was set and Rod swung his leg and missed the field goal in the third quarter that would have given Georgia a 17-point lead over the Tide. We move on to number four, which is the 2012 wild card game. So the reason this ranks as number four for me is for a few reasons. Um, number one, Chipper Jones, as I mentioned, you know, fandom, my age, I'm, I'm 34. Um, Chipper Jones was definitely my favorite player. He's still my favorite Brave of all time. This was his last game. He actually commits an error late in this game that directly leads to the Braves losing this game. Of course, the stupid, moronic, 
infield fly call. I'm not even going to say the name of the idiot umpire who screwed up and called this an infield fly, only to say that he also screwed up uh, some calls in the playoffs this past year. So you can Google that if you want to, but I'm not saying the fool's name. So this game is the first wild card game. As I mentioned a second ago, a year earlier, had the second wild card existed, then the 2011 collapse wouldn't have been such a collapse. The Braves would have still made the wild card as the second wild card along with the Cardinals. This, they win the wild card, but it's the first year that whoever won the wild card, well, they still had to play the second wild card team. So if 2012 and 2011 were flipped, then neither one of those seasons would probably be on this list. But rather than going straight into a divisional series uh, as the wild card winner, the Braves have to play an extra game against the Cardinals in Atlanta at Turner Field. The game doesn't go the Braves' way. Chipper Jones' career ends in horrible fashion when the call is made incorrectly on the field the fans and what i can only say as a fan is the most embarrassing moment that fans have had in atlanta sports in my lifetime littered the field with garbage while i understand how they felt that was a very embarrassing moment for the franchise and then at least for me part of the worst part of this is after the game of all people to sit at a table and tell you that it wasn't a blown call, that the umpire got it right. Joe Torrey, the guy who cursed the Braves in the 90s, twice beating the Braves in the World Series in 96 and 99 as the manager of the Yankees. Joe friggin' Torrey is the guy that's going to sit up there and tell you, no, the call was right. Anybody with eyes, anybody with any kind of sense of how baseball works and how the infield fly works could tell you that it was the wrong call. But old Joe stood up there and stood by his man. And that, to me, was what made it even worse after the fact. We'd already lost the game. It was over. We'd already embarrassed ourselves by throwing things on the field. But then to turn around and be told that, hey, we didn't screw it up, was just salt in the wound. Now... That weekend is one of the worst weekends in sports history for my lifetime. That happens on a Friday night. On Saturday, I drive to Columbia, South Carolina with my brother, and we watch a top 10 matchup between the Gamecocks and the Dogs that Georgia lost 35-7. to So to say that those 48 hours uh, stick in my memory as some of the crappiest sports moments, I would say that is uh, fair to say. So if you're going to do a two-dayer, that would make the list, but the 2012 wildcard game, number four on our top 10 list today. Number three, as we enter the top three, the 2012 SEC title game. Before I get into this game, I just want to tell you something about our list. We got the 2012 wildcard game, the 2012 SEC title game. Uh, earlier, we had an honorable mention for the 2012 NFC title game. If you were going to pick the crappiest year, Just one single crappy year in Georgia sports history. I think you're going to have to throw 2012 in there as uh, the most likely winner. But we'll focus on number three for now, 2012 ACC title game. So a little bit of personal uh, context around this game. Because I think, for me at least, a lot of this, these games and these moments in time, it, it makes me think back to where I was and what was going on. 2012 SEC title game. I'm watching it with my brother, my sister-in-law. Amy was running some errands, and I am holding 364-day-old Harrison watching this game. 
Okay. He was turning a year old. We were having his birthday party the next day. And when Alec Ogletree returned a blocked field goal in the third quarter to give Georgia an 11 point lead, a tear rolled down my face. I was holding a sleeping baby. I couldn't jump up and scream. My brother and sister-in-law tried to mute their excitement too. And when my brother stood up and looked at me and saw that tear falling down my face, that tear of joy signifying that perhaps Georgia was going to advance to the national title game that was going to be a bye because everybody and their brother knew that these were the two best teams in college football in 2012, and either one of these teams were going to mop the floor with Notre Dame in the title game. He looked at me, and he said, don't start that yet. And he was right. Bama would score at will in the second half, and with three minutes and 15 seconds left in the game, Alabama takes a 32-28 to lead. Aaron Murray actually threw an interception on Georgia's ensuing drive, but was ruled an interception on the field. Video review would see that the ball touched the ground and Georgia would be given a second life. They would come out after that and find Arthur Lynch down the middle of the field. Boom, boom, boom. Georgia's driving down the field all the way down to the eight-yard line. And then as all things seem to go with Georgia sports, it's not just what happened, but the controversy surrounding what happened. It's not just that we went for it in 2018 and missed in the SEC title game against Alabama. It's that we try to fake punt. In this situation, the decision not to spike the ball was one that I don't know has if anybody's ever told the truth about. Was that an Aaron Murray decision? Was he getting told from the sideline, just keep going? I mean, it's true. Georgia had the momentum. They, they didn't allow Alabama to substitute, all of that. But with the amount of time left on the clock when Georgia gets to the line, if they spike the ball, they probably get two plays into the end zone. As it is, they snap the ball. The pass goes to Chris Connolly, a wide receiver who has always been blamed for catching the ball, which coming off the 2019 season, I think we can all say, you know what, maybe a receiver just catches the ball and we'll live with the results. But in this situation, Connolly catches the ball. Time expires before Georgia can snap the ball again to get another playoff. Alabama survives, wins 32-28, and goes on to win their second consecutive national championship while Georgia ends up uh, ending their season for all intents and purposes once again <laughs> with a loss this time in the Georgia Dome. It's really, really difficult looking back now to try to fathom what could have been post-2012 if Georgia wins that national championship. But the ironic part of that, and I remember it at the time, the sideline shot or the the camera view that CBS had when that game ended, the first man across the screen from the Alabama sideline jumping up and down with his arms in the air when Georgia, when the clock ran out and Alabama had won the SEC title, Kirby Smart. So just weird how I remember things like that. If you're still with me, you can probably guess what the top two in our countdown of the 10 worst moments of the past decade for Georgia and Atlanta sports is. You may be a little bit surprised at the order. So number two on our list, the 2018 National Championship game. I struggled with this because there's a lot of factors around the National Championship game that make it a truly awful moment, but 
I, I had to go with the tiebreaker being how I felt at the time. So let's talk about the national title game, and then we'll kind of give some context. Georgia's up 13 to nothing at halftime. I get a text from my uncle saying, congrats. Uh, I immediately started feeling impending doom because anytime uh, anything feels like it's going to go well, it means something terrible is going to happen. At halftime, the talking heads uh, were talking about, will Nick Saban go to the backup quarterback? And I remember scoffing and telling my wife, who was the only person watching the game with me by request, uh, it was my 33rd birthday, uh, January 8th, 1818. Um, I remember telling her, these guys are crazy. They're actually saying that Saban should take a quarterback who hasn't played meaningful snaps all year and put him in the biggest game of the year at the biggest moment of the year rather than continuing to go with the guy that got him here. Well, of course, a few minutes later, that exactly did happen. And on the first series that uh, the Alabama savior, Tua, on his first drive, they go three and out. The punt is blocked. Georgia recovers the blocked punt inside the Alabama 20 with a 13 to nothing lead and at least three points guaranteed, except for the stupid yellow piece of cloth that was falsely and erroneously thrown on the field, calling Georgia offside. Tyler Simmons was, is, and forever will be onside. So the penalty allows Alabama to kick again. They get the punt off, and the game progresses from there. So instead of at least a 16 to nothing lead or perhaps a 20 to nothing lead at that point, if Georgia was able to score a touchdown, Georgia punts. Bama scores a few possessions later, makes it 13 to 7. Georgia comes right back. Right back. The first play of the next drive, 80-yard drive, 80-yard one play. Touchdown pass from Jake Fromm to Miko Hardman. It's 20 to 7, and everything is right in the world again. The very next drive, Tua Tungavaloa, the greatest quarterback in the history of the universe, throws an interception. Georgia has the ball at the Alabama 39 yard line. And on the first play after that interception, Jake Fromm, kind of a three quarter sidearm pass situation, bounces off the helmet of one of the Alabama defensive linemen into the waiting arms of one of the defenders. Alabama gets the ball right back. Later, they would tie the game with three minutes and 49 seconds left. Georgia gets the ball with a chance to drive down the field and potentially win the game. They do nothing, end up having to punt. And Alabama lines up for a, I think it was a 36-yard field goal to win the national championship. At this point, I'm standing in my home watching it pretty down, knowing that we were close and this is how it's going to end. And then the kick is missed. And at that moment, what had felt like impending doom that had progressed from impending doom to assured doom gave a little spark of hope. And it was the cruelest the absolute cruelest thing that could have happened, except for what would happen about 20 minutes later. So we go to overtime. Georgia's first offensive possession is truly offensive as they just go backwards and force Rodrigo to hit a 51-yard field goal to take the lead into overtime. On the first play out of Alabama's drive, a 
16-yard loss on a sack where Tua continued to try to do more than he really should have been trying to do in this game. But then it happened. Second and 26, a 41-yard touchdown pass to end the game, to end the season, and to give Alabama the national championship. The cruelty, in hindsight, was the hope that was given. The hope that was given with the missed field goal. The hope that was given with Georgia's making the long field goal. The hope that was given with the sack of Tua on first down. You had to start thinking. And I I allowed myself to start thinking. Okay, they took this big sack. Their kicker just missed a field goal to win the game. There's no way in the world this guy is coming out and going to hit a field goal to tie the game. We just have to stop. Boom. Game's over. I was done with hope. I had accepted defeat. Everything was over, and I got it. We were going to lose by a field goal. And we ended up losing by three. But in the most cruel and torturous way possible. The reason this is number two and not number one was because of my reaction after the game. I was sad. I was disappointed. But the 2018 National Championship game on 1-8-1-8 felt like the beginning of something, not the end. Hope springs eternal at that point for the Georgia program. So as disappointed as I was, and even now looking back at the game, it doesn't crush me the way that some of, honestly, some of these other losses did. I'm being honest with you when I tell you that from my personal perspective, I felt a lot worse immediately following the South Carolina game than I did that national title game. I have no idea why. I should have been crushed. And I was surely disappointed, but it was not nearly the depth of disappointment that I felt with some of these others. The reason it's so high on the list my personal pain aside, is because of the magnitude. I mentioned earlier in the podcast, what if Georgia wins that, tie, that SEC title game in 2012? What if Mark Rick gets to that BCS title game and wins the national championship? How does that change history? We will forever wonder how the program would have been different had Georgia finished that game out and won the game. I remember watching SportsCenter as soon as the game went off. Scott Van Pelt came on. And he said, you know, we had the story ready of how there was a new program in college football and they were early and it came out of nowhere, but they're here to stay. And he still spent a few minutes at the top of the show giving credit to Georgia. But the reality was that it wasn't a changing of a guard that night. It was the reaffirmation that when you come at the king, you you best not miss. And Alabama on that night proved that they were still the king. What's happened since is Clemson, by winning the national championship last year, making the playoff again this year, and having an opportunity to go three out of four, Clemson is that program now. And I just wonder, had Georgia finished the deal in 2018 in that national championship game, would things have been different in the 2018 season? Would the confidence around the program been different? Do you go on the road and lose to LSU by 20 if you're a national champion? When you're up on Alabama in the 18 title game, do you maintain that confidence that it's required to win that game and make the playoff rather than buckling under pressure and basically feeling like it was deja vu all over again? I hope, obviously, I hope beyond hope that one day we look back and We look at 2018 as the one that got away. But that 
Kirby Smart and the University of Georgia win one, two, three national championships to make us all get that feeling in our lifetime of what it is like for your favorite team, of all your teams, your favorite team to win a championship. But if the last decade's taught me anything, it's that despair is not always followed by happiness. That the darkness doesn't always give way to the dawn. And at this point, after the 2018 season, after the 2019 season, and the uncertainty that we all feel now, a mere, what are we, like, not even two years since this game was played. Nothing is guaranteed. And we might look back at that 2018 national championship game and say, not just was that, that was the one that got away, but that's as close as we're ever going to get. The reality of sports in America is that the NFL is king. Um, No matter where your fandom lies, there's nothing bigger in sports in America than the Super Bowl. So number one on our list is... The cherry on top of the crap Sunday that was sports in the past decade. Super Bowl 51, 28-3. No matter what happens for the Falcons moving forward, five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, 28-3 to is going to be a joke that Saints fans, Panther fans, Patriot fans, any fan that you like, anybody would just be able to say 28-3 to and it will immediately bring you doom. I think the most crushing part of 28-3, to and if you, know, you don't know all the numbers around it, it's 28-3, to I think with like 8 minutes and 13 seconds left in the fourth quarter. 28-3. The worst part of it, in kind of looking back and analyzing it, is that the Falcons should have won the game. I mean, obviously, what I just said, of course they should have won the game. It was 28-3. No, 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 no. Even after the collapse had started, they won the game. Matt Ryan hit Julio Jones at the 22-yard line of the Patriots for a first down in a tippy-toe, stretched out, one of those catches. One of those catches like the Giants had against the Patriots in both of their Super Bowl wins. One of those catches that should live in NFL history forever. One of those catches that should have been the end. It should have marked the conclusion. It was a comeback that fell short. That's what the story should have been. The Falcons won the game. And yet, after that first And 10 from the 22-yard line, a run up the middle for a one-yard loss. The very next play, a sack where Devontae Freeman completely misses the blitzer. It's a 12-yard loss. Then there's a completion on third down for a nine-yard game that would have sort of gotten Atlanta into field goal range. It might have been a longer field goal, but you still have a a chance to hit a field goal at that point. It's 28-20 to at this point. It would have been an 11-point lead. The game's over. But holding is called on Jake Matthews, and it sets up third and 33. It's incomplete, and with three and a half minutes left in the game, Matt Bosher has to punt the ball back to the Patriots, who drive down the field, score a touchdown, get the two-point conversion, go to overtime, win the toss, take the ball, drive down the field, and win Super Bowl 51, 34-28 over the Falcons, completing the biggest comeback in Super Bowl history, 
the biggest collapse in Super Bowl history, and the most painful moment of the last decade in Atlanta sports history. The loss in the Super Bowl was the saddest I've been after a sporting event. I've been mad before, I've been aggravated before, I've been disappointed before, but nothing compares to that Super Bowl loss. Watching that game, understanding how hard the Falcons had to work to lose that game, understand something. Up 28-20, to Julio Jones makes the catch. The Falcons could have taken a knee three straight times, kicked the field goal from that very spot, and they would have won Super Bowl 51. The history of the franchise, Dan Quinn, Matt Ryan, Julio Jones, everything would be different. That one small play. And if you don't believe me, I'm just going to tell you right now. Think back to 2001. This very same Patriots team. I mean, not the same team, but the Patriots. Against the Rams, huge underdogs. Nobody thought they could win. Vinatieri hits a field goal as the game ends. The Patriots got their first one. And then what happened? They became the standard in the NFL for the past nearly 20 years now. The first one is always the hardest one to get. The first one is always the hardest one to get. And there's no way of ever knowing what could have happened, what might have happened had this collapse not happened. It was historic in nature because it's a Super Bowl. Everything that happens in a Super Bowl goes down and lives forever. But the collapse, the fact that the Falcons didn't have to do anything else in the game to win the game, they just couldn't give the ball away. Penalties, turnovers, missed blocks, and a defense that leaked like a sieve at the end of that game. We all knew what was coming. Once the Patriots got the ball back, 28-20, to 20, you knew what was coming. That defense was gassed. There was no chance. So for the rest of the drive that ended uh, the game in a tie and sent it to overtime, the coin toss. Now, Atlanta wins the coin toss? Who knows? Maybe we go and we score a touchdown and we finish it off. The Patriots' defense wasn't amazing. As I just said, Matt Ryan made throws. They got the he got the offense in position to win the game. This was the Shanahan team. They, they were a prolific offense, one of the greatest in NFL history. So if that coin goes the Falcons' way, maybe the Falcons are the ones because they don't have to put that terrible defense back out on the field. Maybe the Falcons are the ones that go out there and win that game. But as soon as the Patriots won that toss, the game was over. And so that is... Number one on our countdown of the 10 worst moments of the past decade in Georgia sports history. I appreciate you listening today. If you're depressed after listening to this, blame uh, Alex Anthopoulos for not making a move, whether re-signing or not re-signing. I mean, maybe blame Josh Donaldson. If he had already signed, I would have had something else to talk about, and I wouldn't have gotten myself kind of thinking about this during the week. Or you could blame the myriad of different people for all of the horrible moments we've had over the past 10 years. But as I said at the top of the show, what I wanted to do today was exercise all these demons. We're just going to move past it. We are, as I record this, today is the December the 20th. We're five days till Christmas. There's 11 days left in this putrid, god-awful decade. And as the decade 
dwindles down to nothing, we can look forward to what hopefully will be 10 years of payback for all this crap. And I'll just leave you with this maybe happy thought. What if, as bad as the last 10 years have been, what if the next 10 are that great? Can you imagine a world with a Super Bowl, a World Series, a national title? Just give me those three over the next 10 years and I'm a happy man. But what if we win a couple? Pick any of them. What if you get a couple? Maybe 10 years from now, whatever medium is out there, because I'm sure podcasting will be a thing of the past by that time. Maybe it'll be like projecting somebody's image right there in front of them. TVs will be a thing of the past. Who knows where we'll be 10 years from now. But maybe 10 years from now, we will be able to look back and say, we came out of the darkest age of Georgia sports into what was the glory years. As I said earlier, the Our biggest enemy is hope. (laughs) But without it, what do we have? So we turn the page out of this decade and hopefully into happier times. Merry Christmas to you and to your family. I will be back next weekend with a preview of the college football playoff. And until then, Merry Christmas.